Peace, grace, this is Pastor Colton Lott from First Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, El Reno. We have the privilege of building Christian community in El Reno for the world. And so if you care about building Christian community or El Reno or the world, we're glad you're listening to this podcast. If you want to help contribute to the gospel work of this congregation, please visit our website, fcclreno.org, and go to the Give Online tab. And now, here's the sermon for the week. So as many of you have undoubtedly gathered, we are going to spend our Easter season worship series talking about the book of Revelation. Angels and demons and seals. Oh my! The book of Revelation is notoriously difficult for Christians to understand. To understand and interpret the book of Revelation, some scholarly knowledge is required. Now, I am someone who believes that anyone can read the Bible and get something out of it. Bread for today, bread that will nourish and sustain a Christian on their journey. But, with every due respect, that is different than being able to interpret the text as a follower of Jesus, an informed follower of Jesus. So for this worship series about this bizarre text known as the Apocalypse of John or Revelation, I'm going to run a little experiment with us. Each week I'm going to take a few minutes before the anthem, before we read scripture, before the sermon proper to have what I am calling preliminary information. A time to give a few key points about the scholarship around Revelation, this letter that we know as the last book of the Bible, to see if that helps us to interpret it with integrity and to understand it better as a community. And don't worry, I'm going to shorten my sermon accordingly. And so as a final word of introduction, uh, this preliminary information uh, is not only for the passage at hand, but it's for the whole book of Revelation. It's hard to mince that book up. Um, So while some is good, more is better. And if you're, as we go, if you find yourself unable to be in worship or to catch church online, I just remind you that Chris Prather has wonderfully and dutifully reproduced our sermon each week into a podcast And each week it will have this preliminary information, which I need to tell him about as he is uh, um, not with us today. So today's preliminary information is that Revelation is a letter. Much of the New Testament is written as letters. Most famously, the Apostle Paul wrote to churches that he loved but was unable to be physically present with the hopes that his letters would bear his presence to encourage to dispense wisdom, and especially to help those congregations solve real problems that they were encountering as they became the church, building the plane while they flew it. Revelation, which was written by John of Patmos, not the Apostle John, which, and not the Gospel of the author of John, or the Epistles of John. Uh, this John is writing a letter to the seven churches in the Roman province of Asia, which is today known as Turkey. It would have been read aloud as part of worship, most likely in one sitting. So if you thought that 75 minutes was a long time to worship, wait till I read you 22 chapters of Revelation. Letters are written to real people with real lives 
Just as it was today, so it was then. And while this seems obvious, it bears being said, the first audience to Revelation, the people to whom John of Patmos is sending this letter, would have understood what John was saying more easily than we can today. It might have been mysterious, but it would have been understandable because there is no time that we can point to where human communication didn't have a point. Any understanding of revelation that wouldn't make sense to them should be suspicious to us. That isn't to say that our interpretations, what it means for us today, is going to be the same as what our ancestors in the faith understood some 1900 years ago. But our understanding of what John intends to say should be received pretty similarly to that first audience. Talking about that first audience, um, from our analysis of this text and the region of those seven churches, we know that these Christians, and more broadly early Christianity, was in a crisis moment. The best scholarship will say that this letter was written about the year 96 CE or the Common Era at the time of the end of the Emperor Domitian's reign. And you don't need to remember that. But what you do need to remember was that Domitian was an emperor who was interested in the divine cult following that was building up around the Roman emperor. By which the Roman emperor is the one known as Lord The emperor is known as divine, the anointed one. The emperor is also known as the son of God. So when Christians say, no, 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 Jesus is Lord. Jesus is known as divine, the anointed one. Jesus, and Jesus alone is the son of God. That put them in opposition to the stated policy of the Roman Empire, which hoped to consolidate a lot of cultures and practices and beliefs across this large, multi-continental world by just sneaking in one extra god into a local community's collections. Zeus, Baal, Diana, Marduk, add Caesar to the list. So when the Christians ran afoul, upset a neighbor, ticked off a bureaucrat, they could face stiff consequences, including death. If they not repent of their atheism, of not supporting the gods of the Roman Empire and their general anti-Roman positions. They were politically powerless, without access to rights, like trial or freedom of belief. They likely weren't Roman citizens, as they were the poor, other, the people in the far-flung outside of Rome and its capital. And even though they weren't Roman citizens, their, hands were in the, or their fate was in the hands of Roman officials who didn't know what to do with these weirdos that met on Sundays, what a weird day to gather, in homes, cross-class, and seemed to be cannibals that ate the body and drank the blood of Jesus So when a complaint came or a Roman bureaucrat was annoyed at somebody who was also a Christian, the Roman officials or their designees could hurt them, dispose of them, kill them. It's to this moment that John is writing a different story. It seems bad now, John says. 
It is bad now. But the God who seemed conquered by a Roman cross not only defeated Pilate and his cronies, but overcame death and evil incarnate itself, destroying all that would keep us separated from God. And so this letter was written as a word of hope, reminding these early Christians that they serve a victorious God who has not abandoned them, but is in the business of resurrection. Scripture comes to us from Revelation 1, verses 4 through 8. I invite you to read on the screens behind me or in your pew Bible, or more likely for many of you, your phone, or to simply listen deeply as we hear these words together. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and freed us from priests serving his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Look. He is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him on his account, all the tribes of the earth will wail. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Would you pray with me? God, as we encounter these words, may they be bread for the journey, sustaining us for a new week to live, to love, and to share your life. Amen. As some of you might know, I was in Chicago yesterday as the newly installed board member uh, for the Disciples Divinity House at the University of Chicago. It's one of the seven theological institutions of the Christian Church, Disciples of Christ, and my alma mater. And so I was as nervous flying into Oklahoma City last night as I'm sure that you, some of you were uh, living it on the ground. But we made it safe. We only rolled a few times. But before our meeting began on Saturday morning, I had the wonderful opportunity to meet up for a warm beverage and walk around campus with our own Bradley Baker. She's a second-year undergraduate student in the college at the University of Chicago and lives about three blocks from the Disciples' House. And so as we were walking around the quad of the university, forever immortalized in the beginning scene of When Harry Met Sally, we went by some of the buildings where Bradley had classes And I said, there's Swift Hall. I didn't have a class in this university that wasn't in that place. And she said, well, that's where most of my classes are. She pointed to the hall back where the classics are, the apartment is. And she said, and this window's where my attic Greek class is. 
And we talked for a while about what had a Greek books that we used along the way. And finally, we came catty corner to there. Um, and she said, and that's where I took the class, Is Humanity Doomed? <laughs> yes, I said. If nothing else, the heat death of the universe is going to get us all. Now, some of you might have gathered, I have a kind of cataclysmic brain that wanders over to the reality that in some order of billions of years from now, all of the stars in the universe will inevitably burn out and that entropy will finally cease and the great nothing that is something that is our universe will simply be nothing again. Of course, why get ahead of yourself? Long before that, there's the heat death of the Earth. In something like one billion years, give or take, our sun will have expanded to the point, as stars do, that we will have more heat on the planet Earth, which will heat our planet up to the point that the water boils off of the planet and we are rocky like Mercury. Doomed, I tell you, doomed! (laughs) Of course... None of us will be here in a billion years, and whenever I start to get a little sweaty thinking about it, I have to remember that. Barring some incredible advancements in medicine, only a handful of the babbling babies and tots that we have might be with us if they have genes like Odie Clark in a hundred years. And yet, it isn't impossible to imagine real threats to human life and flourishing in the next 100 years. It's nauseatingly easy. Surely, in these days of the Ukrainian war, we are aware in keen, painful ways that the threat of nuclear annihilation never went away with the end of the Cold War. With the controls of the most destructive arms in human history in the hands of frighteningly few, often, and as is the case now, in the hands of unstable leaders like the Russian president. As we celebrate Earth Day this past Friday, and remember the creation which God has given humanity, I was performing my work on Friday afternoon as a trustee of the house, and I was keenly reminded that the effects of climate change are real and pronounced and here. Now, you can laugh with me because, amazingly, funnily enough, they've put me on the House Committee, which is to say property and grounds. Um, Chicago summers are different uh, than they were in the air-conditionless days that the house was constructed 100 years ago. The summers are hotter and muggier for longer And those repetitions of 90-degree days are starting to make the inside of it feel like an oven, which is it will keep cool until you heat it up for too long, and then it just bakes you. And so, with the assumption that summers won't be getting cooler, how much longer can we avoid putting air conditioning into a 100-year-old limestone building to make it through the summer? And of course... As we remember the 27th anniversary this past week of the Oklahoma City bombing and the incredible wound that is still felt, we don't need some foreign adversary or a temperamental climate to take us out. We are far too good at harming and murdering our own siblings, just like Cain. So, is humanity doomed? That's a question for the likes of John of Patmos. Writing to the seven churches of Asia, John is writing to encourage a people who certainly feel doomed 
the God that they worship and know definitively through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus seems very quiet right now. For being so loudly triumphant on that first Easter, now some 70 years later, that victorious God is seeming to ignore the cries of the people that worship that God as they suffer and are excluded and even die for the Christ they proclaim. It's a shambly world. It's a dumpster fire. They are surely asking each other, are we doomed? Are we destined to suffer, to be excluded, to be ostracized by an ignorant and violent culture, to be killed for this God of life? But I refuse to believe that the first church or any church is entirely that selfish. Surely they also wanted to know that if the God who raised Jesus from the dead will rescue the world after all, saving the creation from the evil that still stubbornly is running rampant. Despite all evidence to the contrary, is there hope? So after my knee-jerk reaction to Bradley that, yes, humanity must be doomed, I asked her how the class ended. It ended on a maybe, she said, which is so frustrating. (laughs) John of Patmos, as he's writing to the seven churches of Asia and through the power of the Holy Spirit to us today, might be saying something similar. Maybe we are doomed. He reminds the church the God who was and who is is also the God to come. Not some static God who will simply be, but a God who will do. This God will come and bring to fruition that which was evident in the resurrected Christ. God will come. And this is a great hope. God has not abandoned us any more than God abandoned Jesus. Just as God loved Jesus, so it is that God loves us. Just as God freed Jesus from the grave, so it is that God frees us. And just as God has exalted Jesus, so it is that God has made us to be a royal family of priests serving that almighty God. So it would seem that we are not doomed after all if we trust in this resurrecting God. But I still believe that the answer John would give is maybe. Because even in John's real words of hope, there is this reality that we're not there yet. We're not beyond the hard parts or the suffering or the precarity that marks our life and our society and our world. The frustrating maybe is that this, in every sense of the word, This economy, this order, this system, this world is not sustainable. It will change drastically. This version of life, this version of reality is doomed. For those that worship the false idols of success, of building your own empire from scratch, of serving the so-called almighty dollar... It will hurt like hell when it all crashes down and falls away. But, 
What's coming next? What's coming next is heaven. For the good of all, for the rebirth of all creation, for the family of God, which will not simply be partial, but complete. Fully real, fully known. Like in our image of the butterflies, which you see all around the sanctuary, uh, butterfly net and flyswatter bring next week. The caterpillar is doomed. The caterpillar gets turned into soup that then has to eat its own way out of a chrysalis. But the butterfly, the butterfly is glorious and beautiful and free. To close, I'm reminded that today many churches are reading the story from the Gospel of John about Thomas, better known as Doubting Thomas. His desire to see the nail-scarred hand of Jesus is assigned every year to the second Sunday of Easter, the first Sunday after the resurrection, the so-called Low Sunday. John of Patmos is in no small part asking us to remember those nail-scarred hands. Remember, he seems to ask. Remember when we thought all was lost? We were wrong then. And we would be wrong to write off God now, too. We know the end of the story, friends. Which means we know the end of every story. Our God is in the business of resurrecting what was lost. Our God is making all things new. Church, we know the end of the story. Which means that we can truly begin the work of being that royal family of God. Being servants of God. Serving That God who came in the form of a servant in Jesus Christ. Serving through acts of love and justice and care for our neighbors. Which demonstrate the world that is coming into being now. We can't resign ourselves to suffering. But must actively be that family of God which displaces the status quo. Ending our worship of calloused hearts. And embracing despair. And resigning the world to suffering. John, to that church and to this church, asks us to commit, as we would say, to building disciples and relationships and compassion in a world which only knows how to peddle consumption and isolation and apathy. But we know the end. So let's begin living out that resurrection that was and is and is to come. Amen.